Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our second ever episode of Stat Dose of EDU. I'm your host, Wai Chung Se, and I'm joined today with Christian Shanae, and we're both fifth year medical students from Monash University. Now, as a disclaimer, the Stat Dose of EDU podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely our own and do not reflect those of our affiliated institutions. Awesome. I think it's time to continue this new tradition we've made, Wai Chung, of creating and investigating fascinating medical cases for you, our lovely listeners, to solve. But don't worry, you won't be solving it alone. You'll be joined by an expert guest who we'll introduce shortly. But for now, let's go to that case. Anita is a 45-year-old G2P2 who called triple zero for 10 out of 10 abdominal pain. This pain started three days ago and was initially mild to moderate, but had been gradually getting worse. She visited her GP, who prescribed her some codeine tablets, which failed to adequately control her abdominal pain. The pain is maximal in the lower abdomen, aching in character, and extends up to the mid-chest. It is associated with anorexia and nausea, but no vomiting. The patient also reports having copious brown malodorous vaginal discharge in the last week. Finally, the patient reports subjective fevers, cold sweats, and shivers which started yesterday. There is no associated urinary symptoms such as dysuria, frequency, or urgency. Her bowels opened last night and were normal. She has no cough, coryza, or other respiratory symptoms. Alright folks, let's not delay any longer. It's time to introduce our special guest of the pod today, whose name is... Neville Fields! Neville is a beloved friend and mentor of ours. We met him in our fourth year of medical school on our obstetrics and gynecology rotation, and he was a great help to us, helped us to really understand a lot of the conditions in women's health, as well as further our clinical reasoning, and also just give us great life advice. He's a great speaker, teacher, and researcher, and you're going to love hearing from him as he solves this case. But that's enough from us. Let's hear from the man himself. So my name is Neville. I'm a second year Ramscog ONG trainee at Monash Health, and I'm also a concurrent final year PhD candidate at Monash University uh, studying uh, preeclampsia and COVID during pregnancy and the, the role of a, a novel therapy. I also am one of the adjunct lecturers at the university and one of the tutors uh, for fourth years on their rotation through women's and newborn. Well, 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 this Neville guy seems to have a pretty impressive CV, but there's just one question that remains to be answered, and that is, does Neville have what it takes to handle a stat dose of EDU? What do you think, Wai Chung? I don't know, Christian. Well, there's only one way to find out. Let's see what Neville thought of the case that you, our lovely audience, just heard. So we have Anita, who's a para two, she's had two previous children, some onset of abdominal pain. It's had a gradual onset of 72 hours, which initially was mild and now it's getting much worse. The fact that she's seen her GP and you know, coding um, means in my mind that she's had some medical review and it's escalating to now needing an ED. Lower abdominal pain, it's aching, so it's not sharp, but it extends through to the mid chest, uh, associated with anorexia and nausea, but she's got no vomits. That's why I'm curious about what her appendix is. Still there. Um, 
she also has copious brown mellitus vaginal discharge, which is pretty unusual, not super common. I'd be thinking along the lines of if she'd been recently pregnant, if she miscarried, like what her HCG is doing, whether or not she's got an STI history, if she got like pelvic inflammation, so like PID. Um, and she's had that for the last week, she says. And she's also had subjective fever, cold sweats and shivers. Um, no associated urinary symptoms and certainly no bowel or respiratory symptoms. So I suppose in my mind, I think the money is on probably um, a, an infective source with PID probably being at the top of my um, diagnostic sit based on a small amount of history. There's things that I'd want to know, and I'd probably want to obviously talk to her and examine myself. It's fair to say that this is a gynae-related theme or an obstetric theme, but it's pretty common that because people are gendered female, that they kind of assume that nearly always it's pelvic or it's vaginal or it's ovarian. It's an ectopic until proven otherwise. But the reality is women present with appendicitis every day. And so I suppose from the history, all I know is this patient's a para two. I don't know if she's currently pregnant or is unknowingly pregnant, um, but the time course of three days with a migratory, whilst you've reported it to be sort of mid thoracic chest is sort of a migratory pain pattern with associated anorexia and nausea, then I suppose my kind of first thought is that I should exclude appendicitis or at least have it somewhere up there. Yeah. That said, with the abnormal PV discharge, that's pretty uncommon. So unless this patient has um, really quite severe, like malodorous, you know, PID, but the chorioamnionitis or kind of postnatally um, um, infective endometritis is often, you know, a consequence of um, products of conception that have been left behind in the uterus. And so it may very well be possible that this patient fell pregnant, miscarried, had no idea, still has tissue sitting within the uterus, has resulted in uh, a degree of infective endometritis and now is passing infective sloth product of conception, causing a unknowingly kind of septic miscarriage. So how did your thinking compare with Nev's? Nev is currently thinking about PID, also known as pelvic inflammatory disease, as his primary differential. Taking this all together, how would you present your case to the consultant? Hello, consultant. I have a 45-year-old with a, a para 2 who's got a three-day history of lower abdominal pain, migratory with associated abnormal PV discharge and subjective fever and chills. All right. Let's hear more about Anita's past medical history. For her menstrual history... Anita's last menstrual period was approximately one month ago. She takes the mini pill and is due for a period in three days. At baseline, she has menorrhagia with heavy flow, about five to six pads a day, and long duration of periods. Since starting the mini pill approximately one year ago, she also has intermenstrual bleeding. For her sexual history, she was last sexually active two weeks ago and has had two sexual partners in the last year, who are both males. She used condoms with both partners, and her last CST was one year ago, which was normal. She has never had an STI as far as she knows. Anita also gave birth to two full-term children, one 13 years ago and one 15 years ago. 
Both pregnancies were uncomplicated and ended with normal vaginal deliveries. Both children are healthy. For her past medical history, she was diagnosed with uterine fibroids about 12 months ago on transvaginal ultrasound. She has had an appendectomy one year ago for appendicitis, and she's had acute cholecystitis with a cholecystectomy 30 years ago. Anita lives with her two children at home, works in retail, and she's never smoked. She occasionally drinks moderate amounts of alcohol. It's time to hear the examination findings as well. In terms of the patient's vital signs, Anita's heart rate is 108 beats per minute, respiratory rate is 15, blood pressure is 103 on 78, oxygen saturations are 96%, on room air, the vitals are notable for a fever of 38.6. Anita appears generally unwell. She is diaphoretic, but appears dehydrated and is reporting thirst. Her capillary refill time is 3 seconds and her mucous membranes appear dry. Her mobility is significantly limited by her abdominal pain, and as such, she struggles to adjust her position in the bed. Her GCS is 15. On examination of the abdomen, voluntary guarding is noted. There is marked tenderness to superficial palpation, most pronounced across the entire lower abdomen, but not clearly localizing to either side. Rebound tenderness is present, but only over the lower abdomen. Bowel sounds are present and normal. There is no tenderness at the costovertebral angle. A speculum examination was also performed. On initial inspection, blood-tinged malodorous vaginal discharge was noted to cover the introitus and the labia majora. The cervical os showed blood-stained mucoid discharge. Gonococcal and chlamydial NATS, or nucleic acid amplification tests, were taken, as well as a high vaginal swab for bacterial culture. The cardiorespiratory examination revealed dual heart sounds with no murmurs, no gallops, and no rubs. Her lungs are clear to auscultation bilaterally, and her calves are soft and non-tender. So, from the information I've now been given, I know that this patient's tachycardic and febrile. She's got a respirator of 15 for otherwise 40-year-old. So again, technically normal. But um, I wonder again whether or not sort of this sort of earlier signs of sort of a sepsis picture. The blood pressure of 103 on 78. If she's walking around the community with a blood pressure of 135 on 95, then this is significant. Um, technically, again, am I going to be calling a metcor code blue? Not yet. But the fact she's febrile and tacky kind of fits again with that PID kind of picture. The examination findings shows that this person's dehydrated. Uh, delayed cap refill, obviously she's dehydrated, um, dry mucous membranes, um, pain's limiting her movement, um, which, you know, uh, to be expected. She's got voluntary guarding, which I don't take much note of really, um, so common to see voluntary guarding. The fact that she's got marked tenderness to superficial palpation, most pronounced across the entire lower abdomen, but not clearly localizing. Um, but she's got rebound tenderness, so she's got some degree of peritonism. She's got normal bowel sounds um, and the spec uh, exam, um, which again is in keeping with our concerns of STI and sort of a PID type picture shows some malodorous discharge. There's no kind of comment on the appearance of the cervix 
whether or not there's sort of, you know, um, inflammation of the cervix, sort of injection of like um, uh, edema and sort of um, blood, you know, like a strawberry cervix with chlamydia, but what they do have reported is a mucoid discharge. So again, the right swabs have been taken, done STI-PCR swab, um, which is a what colour swab, red top, not a white top. The HVS, MCNS, like the microscopy and culture swab should have also uh, was been done. Um, white tip. Um, fourth years need to know that for their apexes. So, yeah. Everything so far is pointing me again towards a PID type picture. I suppose the OBS, though, um, are at that point where I'd be wanting to consider sort of rehydration, IV antibiotic therapy quickly, blood cultures. So in some ways, this patient's presentation is non-classical for PID. I mean, on examination, we found a discharge that has some features that might be concerning for PID, but certainly isn't the classic mucopyrrolent discharge that MCQs from various textbooks would have us expect for a patient with PID. Additionally, we haven't heard anything about cervical motion tenderness or other specific signs associated with PID. Uh, all we have is this lower abdominal pain, which can be caused by numerous different things. Mm. And the fact that her abdominal pain is very severe to the point where she had to call the ambulance. I mean, lower abdominal pain, is, which is really severe, is oftentimes very undifferentiated. And the fact that Neville pointed towards PID very early on without a lot of these key factors that we normally see in the MCQs as, for lack of a better word, buzzwords, really you know, points towards... A clinical reasoning that we really want to pick his brain about and so i think like it is important i think it's a really important question that you don't get sort of sidelined into well this classical definition or theory of whatever this presentation doesn't fit therefore it doesn't work um so i would say all the time patients fall outside of that classical presentation but it is it is kind of nice when they kind of co-align where you're like oh she's presented with sudden onset abdominal pain, has had a history of ovarian cysts, and she just happens to be day 15 of her LMP. She's mid-cycle. It's like tick, tick, tick. It's nice to kind of see the alignment, mm -hmm. but I don't necessarily then see someone four weeks with, you know, expected menstrual cycle to begin tomorrow. I don't necessarily discount the fact that they haven't had a cyst rupture. One of the interesting examination findings in this case is that the patient is febrile. So we asked Nev if the severity of fever for him has any impact on his perception of the case, of the severity of the patient's illness, or of the nature of the patient's illness. And here's what he had to say. I would be wondering whether given like paracetamol, whether given something, you know, as an antipyretic, like what is the fever in context of the bigger picture of that patient's journey? Did the paramedics give them some paracetamol with, you know, some fentanyl, you know, like what was the background to this patient reporting a temper 38.6? A bigger question, I think, you know, of relevance to your kind of question to me is why is a temper 37.9 not significant and a temper 38.0 is or 38.1? I suspect somewhere in the history of medicine, Western medicine, people have allocated chunks of like, this is pathological, this is not pathological. And so in amongst that spectrum comes these cutoffs, right? But actually, in my mind, usually it's a trend 
it's always a trend, right? We look at blood pressure trends, heart rate trends, temperature trends. So for me, the the fever itself of 38.6, you could have told me it was 38.2 or 38.9 or 39.1. I mean, post 39, it's getting a bit unusual, but you know, yes, I would agree that there is a degree of severity with a fever, but for the most part, anything kind of high 37, 6, 7, 8, whilst we won't document is febrile, it's low-grade fever. In my mind, they're infective. God damn, Nev has such a way of making things sound easy and simple and clear. Um, very jealous. But anyway, one thing you'll notice is that we have left out Nev's analysis of the past medical history. But you should not take this as a sign that Nev's analysis of this was not insightful. On the contrary, it was much more extensive than we had anticipated. Far too long to put mm. in this podcast, but very, very educational. We'll try and give you the TLDR. So when we raced through the past medical history, we thought it was more so joining the case together and making um, you, the listeners fully appreciate and get more context behind the case. But later on, when we found out that there was more so to interrogating why a patient is on, for example, for Anita, the mini pill, and how that isn't an adequate for her treatment, that's when we start to understand that we shouldn't trust what's on the patient's past medical history and take that for face value, but more so understand the reasoning behind why a patient is on the mini pill and whether this treatment is adequate. Absolutely. And in this case, the points that Nev particularly picked up on were that Anita was having ongoing menorrhagia as well as intermenstrual bleeding from being on the mini pill. So he felt that these were signs that her heavy menstrual bleeding was not being sufficiently managed and that she required further either investigation or change to her management, a new therapy for her menorrhagia. Hmm. Nev summarized this really nicely. What most of us that have gone into medicine really love is understanding the, the, the process and understanding the logic behind this system. And generally, when I don't understand what's happening, it's not because it's a mystery. It's because I haven't asked the right question or I haven't done the right exam or I haven't done the right test. And so I think uh, what we love about medicine is this whole diagnosis part. You know, it's what we do every day. And I think certain specialties have different focus. You know, some of us need more of that chronicity. Some people will manage things in the chronic care space and then others will have a very acute setting where they have to prioritise. Um, but that time course and uh, the kind of um, evolution of the disease is like something I find super interesting, which is why I think everything is in the history. All right. Now that we've got a bit more of a clinical picture, it's up to you listeners to formulate what you would like for investigations. baseline bloods which is where we always start so i want an fbe i want to know what the platelet count is doing and i want to know what a hemoglobin is doing 
whether or not she's, you know, hemolyzing, all of those things, what the white cell count and the neutrophils are doing. Does she have a bacterial picture or like a viral type picture? I want an EUC um, given the dehydration, so she's clearly shut down. So I want to know that her, you know, creatinine's fine, that her electrolytes are all fine, what her K is doing. And I want LFTs because if she's got a PID type picture, you can get concurrent hepatitis with sort of particularly chlamydia. And so you can get these like um, abnormal kind of transaminitis uh, in the setting of P severe PID. So I'd want FBE, EUC and LFTs. With the other bloods, I would want a blood culture clearly because she's febrile, she's over 38. I want to catch her back to remia type picture. So at minimum, we're going to be doing two or ideally three sets of blood cultures from three different stabs to improve the sensitivity of detection of the bacteremia. I want an ABG because I want a lactate and I want a rapid HB and I want a glucose because I don't know how unwell this patient is. Um, she's not yet set, she's not in shock yet, but she's tachycardic and febrile and has a low-ish blood pressure and I don't know what her normal is. So I suppose that's sort of my blood work. Whether or not a CRP is gonna change anything, I generally will order it because it's nice to track over the course of the disease. So if this patient's now admitted, you know, and I was to commence IV antibiotic therapy, the CRP becomes again part of this story of this patient's journey. And yes, there's a lag time for CRP, like 24 to 48 hours. Um, but that would probably be my blood work. And then as far as urine, I'd still want to do uh, a first pass urine, um, although we do have endocervical swabs but definitely a urine dipstick prior to sending for a urine MCNS just to exclude that she doesn't have a cystitis picture as well. And we've already got the high vaginal swabs collected and the endocervical um, PCR swabs. Let's get you those results, doctor. For Anita's FBE, it showed an elevated white cell count with neutrophilic predominance, a normal UEC, normal LFTs, an elevated lactate. Her urine MCS showed three plus polymorphs, two plus RBCs, three plus ketones, and no nitrites. Her CRP was highly elevated, and her beta-HCG was less than two. Her high vaginal swab had no growth, and her chlamydia and gonorrhea NAT was negative. However, the blood cultures grew a gram-negative diplococci in an aerobic bottle after two days and a repeat culture showed Neisseria gonorrhea. All right, Neville, take us home. So I think an interesting point here to remember is that a very large percentage of PID patients never culture anything. So it's quite commonplace for us to make the diagnosis of PID based on history and examination findings and an infective source, but never actually identify a causative organism. And so the PID um, management is quite um, an intense IV antibiotic regime because you're covering quite a broad range of microbes, but it's not uncommon for you never to get the, the bug effectively that caused it. Great job, listeners. Now that we've solved the case, we've got one last task for you. Please refer this case to your consultant. And after that, we'll listen to what Nev has to say about handover tips.
So I would uh, open up with, hi, Wei Chung, are you the gynae reg on tonight? Excellent. I'm sorry to bother you. I've got a patient that I think needs to be admitted on gynecology. Uh, my current diagnosis is that of pelvic inflammatory disease. Is that okay if I have a chat with you? Thank you. So I've got Anita who's a para two, who's a 40 year old that's been admitted with a three day history of worsening abdominal pain in the setting of subjective fevers and chills um, and has had some abnormal PV discharge for the last few days, which is malodorous and brown. Uh, on examination, uh, she's got uh, a degree of peritonism and some abnormal vaginal discharge on speculum. I've taken swabs and done a PCR for STIs as well as done a first pass urine. On her blood work, it's consistent with what looks to be an infection. Um, she's got a raised neutrophil count and a CRP of 430. Um, she's also febrile and tachycardic um, at 115 and um, has a borderline blood pressure of 105 on 74, I think. Um, Ultimately, uh, she's also under undergone a CT tonight, um, which doesn't show a tubo ovarian abscess, but does show some nonspecific stranding in the lower quadrants. Ultimately, I think this patient has PID, and what I'd like to do is admit her for some rehydration um, and some IV antibiotic therapy. I've also done some blood cultures and sent swabs. I think fundamentally, if you can provide a succinct and you know direct series of uh, you know and an opening statement per se to really set the scene. Why are you calling? And then tell me what you want from me or what you know, you're ultimately gonna require from me down the track. I think giving a sufficient and effective like clinical handover is one of the best skills you can develop. And I talk to a lot of students about this because providing a, a really excellent handover it's like everyone just sits back and almost wants to a little applaud you because it's like, I know exactly what you're telling me. I know exactly what you want from me and I know exactly how to help you. The problem comes from my end is when I get these disjointed stories that I don't fully follow and then it can be hard for me to try and understand necessarily what you're wanting from me. And then often what will happen in that scenario is I will just take the referral and I'll come and see the patient myself because I'm not getting anywhere with this person. And so I think uh, practice your handovers because if you do them well, you will like, your bosses will love you. The midnight phone call from, you know, the other team, you know, everyone's just grateful. In my world, we do handover twice a day on birth unit and labor ward. Every patient is a clinical handover. Like practice it, get good at it, be proud of how you give a handover because you start appreciating those that give really bad handovers versus those that give really good handovers. And the final thing I would say is just be a good person. Like we are all stressed at times and we're all busy, but just try and like be a good person because it makes your job so much easier when you walk into a room and people smile. Well, we're reaching the pointy end, but there's a couple more things we still wanted to discuss. One of those things is how can we best approach invasive procedures? In our own experience, it's quite common for healthcare professionals to feel nervous about doing invasive procedures like speculums, bimanuals, PR exams, and perhaps we have good reason for this. These invasive procedures risk maybe hurting our patient or compromising their dignity or breaching their privacy, especially if we don't do them well, or we don't give them the respect that they deserve. 
And in that situation, when we're faced with a challenging examination, which we may not have a lot of experience in doing, it's easy to try and come up with excuses for yourself to avoid having to do that procedure. You might start second guessing yourself. Does this patient really need a speculum? Will it change management? Or maybe even, can I call Gyne to do the speculum for me? They do speculums every day, so aren't they the best people to do it? But something about that thought process just doesn't feel right, and Nev really hit the nail on the head for us on this one. I think women's health is everybody's job, and I don't think it's acceptable not to do speculums. I think, I think that if you're uncomfortable and you would prefer to watch a reg or to contact gynae, I think it's reasonable to kind of raise that question and say, oh, look, I haven't done a speculum yet, but if it's okay, I'd like to do one with you. Or, and on the other end of the line, we're going to be, you know, cheering for that, that you're not only skilling up your own toolbox of, you know, abilities, but it also shows that you're still taking ownership of this case. Sometimes all I need is a phone consult based on the history they've given me in the exam findings and what they've done. So it reduces workload and another person coming, repeating a speculum, doing another exam, another history. So I do think that um, if you, it's just like doing ultrasound, the more you perform them, the more competent you become. And so certainly I think if you're a brand new ED intern, day one on the wards and you pick up a potential miscarriage, you're gonna be nervous doing your speculum. Totally reasonable, right? So does that mean that you ask an RMO or a reg that's done them to come in with you and help you? You know, totally reasonable. But again, I think that this is about how you are becoming a doctor and how you are going to manage the future. Like, do you accept that you can't do this rather basic, yes, invasive um, procedure, which can be done very well? And so I think if you kind of go in with this intention of I want to give the best care for this patient I can, and therefore I want to learn to do a speculum with respect and do it well, I think that's brilliant. And most gynae registrars will applaud you for doing that and will support you in your learning to do that. But calling us for, to just do a speculum, I think is kind of a waste of resources and also kind of inefficient for that patient's care. Moral of the story, as a med student or a junior doctor, there's no need to be afraid to do a speculum because you'll always be well supported to do one in the ED or on whatever team you're on if it's required. And importantly, practice makes perfect. The more speculum examinations that you do, the better you are at delivering quality care by examination and interpretation of your findings. The same applies to taking sensitive histories like a sexual history. I think that the way you can go about as an individual improving your skills and communicating around that is partially is just asking the question and repeating those questions as part of your normal practice. All right, listeners, that concludes another episode of A Stat Dose of EDU. And thank you so much, Nev, for joining us. Your wisdom never ceases to amaze us, and we hope you'll join us another time. Until then, you'll just have to wait and join us for another, another Stat, Stat Dose, Dose of EDU. EDU.